your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 17 this morning. Matthew chapter 3. I'd like to pray for us as we begin, and I encourage you just to keep your Bibles open to that text, and we'll refer to it as we go along in the message. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that was written for our encouragement and our instruction. And today we're looking at a passage that shows us a little bit more, another picture of Jesus Christ and the, the obedience that he showed to you as a father, the desire that he had from the very beginning to identify with us and to stand in our place. We have celebrated that in communion this morning. And today we're going to look at how all of that began in his earthly ministry. And so would you guide us as we look at your word, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Personal beliefs are hard to change. There are times when people can hold on to beliefs, and in spite of all the evidence to the contrary, they refuse to change their, their mind or their opinion. There are people today who still believe that the Holocaust never happened. And it doesn't matter how much you know evidence there may be where you could take them to uh, Ravensbrück or Dachau or others of the concentration camps and they would not believe. They would think it's a hoax. There are people who think the same thing about the Apollo astronauts, that they never landed on the moon, that those missions were simply a hoax to dupe us as a people. And there are people who still think that Elvis is alive, although I think that's probably a smaller number today as time goes on. But in the same way, there are people who hold religious beliefs that are not based on scripture or historical evidence, just personal opinion. And you will hear people say things like, well, I just think all religions are the same. Whenever I hear someone say that, it tells me that they haven't looked at them very closely. Because there's a vast difference between the Eastern religions that think of, quote, God as some kind of impersonal force or energy that flows through the universe and the personal God of the Bible, who is knowable and who sent his son so that we could know him. And sometimes people say things like, well, all good people go to heaven. You know, they kind of think that God grades on a curve, and if, you know, my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, or if I'm just kind of better than the next guy, well, then I'm in. But the Bible doesn't say that. In fact, it says the opposite, that we could never be good enough on our own to earn God's favor or to make it to heaven. We all fall short. And sometimes people will just simply say, you know, I just don't like the idea of hell or eternal punishment, and so I just refuse to believe that God would do that. And so I just kind of, you know, set that aside, discounted, in spite of the fact that Jesus talked about hell and eternal punishment more than anyone. Personal beliefs are hard to change. They can be stubborn things. And we see that at the time of Jesus Christ, too. When Jesus was born, the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah, and they had strongly held beliefs about what that Messiah would be like. Who he would be, what he would do, all of those things they had worked out in their mind, and Jesus didn't fit their beliefs. Jesus came into this world, and he was poor, he was lowly, and they thought that the Messiah would be this great king. 
He ate with tax collectors and sinners. And surely a holy man of God, the Messiah, would not do such things. He was more concerned about their relationship with God than he was with overthrowing Rome. And in their mind, they had the idea that the Messiah would be this great political leader that would restore the monarchy in Israel. He would overthrow all of their enemies and Israel would be the top once again. He spoke about a heavenly kingdom, not an earthly one, and it challenged their thinking. And because of it, many refused to believe. It just didn't fit. But for those who did come to know Christ and who placed their faith in Him, His words were words of life. They were powerful. They cut to the heart. They made dramatic changes in people's lives. So how did God speak? And how did God prepare His people to recognize the Messiah? Well, in the passage we're going to look at today, He spoke by a voice in the desert, that's John the Baptist, And he spoke by a voice from heaven, his own voice that spoke at Jesus' baptism. And both of those voices have something very important to say to us today. We're going to start, first of all, by looking at John the Baptist and his message. And John's message was, first of all, a call to repentance. And we see that in verses 1 to 6. Let me read it for us. Matthew writes that in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. For over 400 years there had been no prophet in Israel, and then came John the Baptist. The last prophet in the Old Testament was Malachi. He wrote about 430 B.C., and this is now somewhere in the year 26-27 A.D., So about 450 years have passed. Malachi said that there would be a prophet who would come before the Messiah. He would be Elijah. And Jesus tells us that John the Baptist was that Elijah. Not Elijah reincarnated, but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah. He was that forerunner for the Lord. And I doubt that we have ever met someone like John the Baptist. I mean, you read the description here, and his clothes were simple. He wore camel's hair as a tightly woven outer garment, and he had a leather belt about his waist. These were the clothes of the poor, and they established a link with the prophets of old. His food would be unappealing to most of us. I mean, he lived on a diet of locusts, which are just large grasshoppers, and wild honey. And his home was the the desert wilderness of Judea. It's about a 20 square mile area between Jerusalem and the Jordan River. A remote wilderness. Uh, There were some others who lived in that area. It was not completely desolate. The Essenes who lived in Qumran, and you've heard of that because of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, There were other people living in that area, waiting, waiting, 
for the Messiah to come. And so here was John. And John's message was also simple but powerful. He called people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. That God was about to do something significant. That He was about to move among His people once again. And John, both by his words and his appearance, preached a simple call to repentance to turn to the Lord. Matthew tells us that John the Baptist was the forerunner to the Messiah that Isaiah had written about. And the verse that is quoted here comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where he speaks of this voice calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. One of the significant notes there is that when Isaiah used these words, he was talking about Yahweh. He was talking about God, the Lord. And now John is saying that this Messiah who comes, which will be Jesus, is Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord who has come. He spoke of the need to repent. And repentance in the New Testament combines two Old Testament ideas. On the one side, it is the word Nahum or Nachum, which means that we are to be sorry for our sins or sorry for our actions. In true repentance, there is a sorrow where we recognize that what we have done in our life is displeasing to God. We have broken His law. We have sinned against Him. And there is a godly sorrow that leads us to repentance. But the other Old Testament idea is the word shuv, which means to turn, to turn. We've been going in a direction away from God and the prophets would call us to repent to turn around and to leave that old way of life and come back to the Lord and walk with Him. And so repentance is not just feeling sorry for our sin. It is more than that. It is a radical transformation of the person. It is a call to a whole new way of life. And we see that in the New Testament. We see it in Saul, the persecutor, who becomes Paul, the apostle, willing to lay down his life for Christ. We see it in Matthew, the tax collector, who was this collaborator with Rome, despised by his own people, and he becomes Matthew, the disciple, follower of Jesus. And we see it too in a woman, Mary Magdalene, from whom we are told that Christ cast out seven demons from her. She had lived a sinful life apart from God and came to know Jesus and became a follower of Christ. These individuals were models of the kind of remarkable change that Christ can make in a person's life when we come to know Him. True repentance calls us to leave the past behind, to confess our sins to God and turn from them and follow Christ. People struggle with that. People struggle with that a great deal. Many years ago, Chuck Colson wrote a book called Loving God, and I'm sure many of you have read it. It was a collection of some marvelous stories and historical examples of the change that Christ can make in a person's life. And he dealt with real issues just like this need for repentance. He told the story of a man named Mickey Cohen who was a famous Hollywood gangster. 
And in 1949, when Billy Graham was just starting out in his preaching ministry, he was holding a series of evangelistic meetings in Los Angeles. And there was a man who knew Mickey Cohen who was converted through Billy Billy Graham's preaching. And he went and he boldly shared the gospel with Mickey Cohen. And Mickey Cohen reportedly prayed the sinner's prayer asking God to forgive his sins and to be his Savior and Lord. And so this friend invited him to attend one of the meetings with Billy Graham and to hear him preach. Well, Mickey Cohen came that night and he kind of wanted to get in early to see if he could get a picture taken of himself with Billy Graham, you know, to show what a good guy he was and the change that had been made, but that didn't happen. And so he sat there that night and he heard Billy Graham preach. And you can hear Billy Graham's voice. I won't try to do an impression. And he was preaching that night and he talked about how all of us deserve hell. That you and I deserve to spend eternity separated from God. The Scriptures teach that you are a sinner and so am I. And you may think you are good and upright and that you have done nothing worthy of damnation. You may say, I am honest in my business dealings. I love my kids. I give to the United Way. But there is no middle ground between heaven and hell. You are either on the road to one or the other. And the Bible shows us the perfect example of a man who wanted to escape his responsibility for his own sinfulness before God, the Roman ruler Pilate. After Jesus had been tried by the Sanhedrin, he was taken before Pilate. But Pilate was just like you and me. He wanted to remain neutral. And he declared Christ innocent. And then he took a bowl of water and he washed his hands in front of the whole multitude. I am washing my hands of this just man, he said. And then he allowed Christ to be led away and crucified. Tradition tells us that Pilate spent his last years of life up in the mountains of Switzerland, washing his hands constantly. And when anyone asked him, what are you doing, he said, I am trying to wash away the blood stain of Jesus Christ off of my hands. Throughout all of eternity, Pilate will try to wash the blood stain off, but he will never be able to do it. Tonight you have to make your choice. Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, you will have to make your choice between pleasure and Christ, between amusements and Christ, between popularity and Christ, between money and Christ. Whatever is keeping you from the kingdom of God, you will have to make your choice tonight. And if you refuse to make the choice, that very act means that you have already made it. Well, Mickey Cohen heard that message and he walked away. And he later told his friend, Jones, you never told me that I had to give up my career. You never told me that I had to give up my friends. There are Christian movie stars and Christian athletes and Christian businessmen. So what's the matter with being a Christian gangster? We chuckle at that as though he didn't get it. But he said, "I have, if I have to give up all of that, if that's what Christianity is, count me out. And yet there are many people who still do that today. They might not be at the point that Mickey Cohen is, but there is something in their life that they don't want to give up. Some sin in their life, some secret desire or pleasure. Something that they are holding on to that is keeping them back from following Christ. 
And Christ calls us to renounce it all, to put it behind, and to follow Him. And Mickey Cohen was not willing to do that. John's message was a call to repentance. His message also was a warning of judgment. And we see that in verses 7 to 12. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. John's message was a warning of judgment. Here we see that large crowds were coming out to hear John preach and to be baptized by him. And many of the Pharisees and Sadducees also came to hear John, perhaps to check up on him, perhaps to see who this one was that the crowds were following. And John's words were pointed. I mean, he called them a brood of vipers. And a viper was known for its subtle yet deadly approach. A viper could come silently, stealthily, coming up behind someone, looking so kind of innocent and harmless. And then it would strike, and its strike was deadly. And he described the Pharisees and the Sadducees in that way because of what they taught the people. The Pharisees were legalists, and they were separatists. They tried to keep the letter of the law, and they thought that by doing so they could earn God's favor. But they were hypocritical, they were judgmental, They thought they were better than others in their self-righteousness. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were more worldly and political. And they were more what we would call theologically liberal in that they denied the resurrection. They did not believe in angels and spirits. They did not believe that the Scriptures were the Word of God and to be taken as true. And here you see two examples of how people can drive off the road into the ditch on either side. I mean, God calls us to walk with Him and to follow His Son, and some people move so far over and they become so judgmental, hypocritical, self-righteous. That's not where God wants us to be. And other people move away from the Scripture and think that it really doesn't matter what we believe, and they treat God's Word as though it's just the writings of men in another book. You can drive into the ditch on either side. John called them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. If you are really sincere about your repentance, then let it show in your life because talk is cheap. Jesus himself would say the same thing. And we see in Matthew 7.21, he said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Let your life show the change that Christ has made in your heart. And he made this statement. John said, don't think that you can say Abraham is our father because ancestry does not get you into the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children 
for Abraham. If John was speaking in Hebrew, there is a pun that he made here. The Hebrew word for stone is eben. You've heard the word Ebenezer, which means stone of help, used in the Old Testament. The word for stone is eben. The word for sons is ben. He is saying that out of these ebens, God can raise up bens if He chooses to do so. Judgment is near. The axe is already at the root of the trees. John's baptism was for repentance, and it seems that he required repentance, required a change of life before he would baptize an individual. And then he speaks of this one who is to come, the Messiah. And he says that the one who comes after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. The baptism that Jesus would bring would be a baptism that purifies and refines. And when we place our faith in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, He baptizes us with the Holy Spirit. And He changes us from the inside out. If there's no change in a person's life, that person may not be a Christian at all. His winnowing fork is in his hand. A farmer would use something like a pitchfork to throw the grain, the straw into the air, and the wind would blow away the chaff, and the kernels of grain would fall down where they could be gathered up. He is saying that Christ is going to come. This one is going to come. This judgment is here. And his winnowing fork is in his hand. He is ready to separate the wheat from the chaff. So now is the time of decision. Now is the time to follow Christ. Do you sense the urgency in what John is saying here? This is the time, if you hear God's voice, to respond to it. I think of the story that D.L. Moody shared, the famous evangelist who ministered in the Chicago area for so many years. He told about one Sunday when he was preaching the gospel and he shared the good news of the gospel. And then he said to the people, I want you to think about this and I want you to come back next week with your decision. And it was during that week that the great Chicago fire swept through the city and thousands died. And D.L. Moody said never again would he give people a week to think about it. That today is the day to make that decision to follow Christ. Because we don't know if we're going to have it tomorrow. We don't know what tonight or tomorrow may bring. So today, if you hear His voice, turn to Him in repentance and faith as Savior and Lord. And then thirdly in this text, we see a voice of affirmation. A voice of the Father speaking, and that is in verses 13 through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. And then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. 
Jesus came to be baptized by his cousin John. And John tried to deter him. And at this point, we need to say, John did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, he may have wondered, but he did not know for sure. In John's Gospel, it tells us that John the Baptist said, I did not know who it would be, but the one who had sent me to baptize had told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. So here was John, and he sees Jesus come to him to be baptized, and he doesn't want to do it. He tries to deter him because this is a baptism for repentance. And he sees in Jesus a righteous man. In fact, more righteous than he is even. And so he's saying we ought to turn this thing around. I mean, it is a remarkable testimony that although he did not yet know Jesus was the Messiah, he saw in Jesus this remarkable quality of life that was different from any other man that he knew. And Jesus said to John, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Why was Jesus baptized? Why did he come to John to be baptized? It wasn't to repent of his sin because he had none. Jesus was baptized to identify with us in our sin and our humanity. The word baptism means to identify with something. You've heard me explain that when we've had our baptism services here at church, out in the backyard where we've done that, and it's been a marvelous thing. And we talk about how when an individual has come to know Christ and they are baptized, they are choosing to identify themselves with Christ. They are saying to their family, their friends, their church, that Jesus is my Savior and Lord. And I have placed my trust in Him and I want to follow Him wherever He may lead. In baptism, we identify with Christ. And here what we see is that Jesus, at the start of His earthly ministry, is coming and He in His baptism is choosing to identify with us in our humanity and in our sin. He understands His mission. That He is the one who will take our place when He dies on that cross. And from the very beginning, He understood what He is to do. Jesus' baptism was the beginning of His public ministry. And remember last week I shared some of those comparisons between Israel as a nation going down into Egypt and being led out and Jesus being the perfect Son who now fulfills all of those things where Israel failed. Just like Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea to be led into the wilderness where they were tested in their faith. Jesus now passes through the water of baptism where He will be led out into the wilderness by the Spirit of God to be tempted by the devil. But where Israel failed, Jesus triumphs. In His his identification with us, He will fulfill all righteousness. He will complete all the righteous requirements of the law, all the things that we were unable to do Because of our sin, Jesus will do because He has no sin. And as soon as He was baptized and He comes up out of the water, the heavens are open, 
the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and a voice from heaven says, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We looked at this verse a few weeks ago in our series Fearless when we were looking at the transfiguration where the voice from heaven said this same words, the same statement with the addition, listen to him. And you may remember at that time that I pointed out that these words are really quotes from different passages of Scripture in the Old Testament that are all significant. This is my son is from Psalm 2, a passage about the Messiah who would be the King of Israel. And God is saying, the King has come. Whom I love is a quote from Isaiah 42. And those chapters from Isaiah 42 through Isaiah 52, 53, all talk about the suffering servant, the one who will take upon himself our sins and die in our place. And God is saying, this is... My son, the suffering servant. And when he makes this statement with him, I am well pleased, the tense in Greek means that he is always pleased with him. That Jesus has always been pleasing to the Father. From the very beginning of time through eternity future. Past, present, future. He is the Son in whom God delights. And God has said that of no other. I mean, sometimes people are asked, why do Christians say that Jesus is the only way of salvation? I mean, why do we say that? That He's the only way to be saved? He's the only way to the Father? The answer to that question is that it is because that's what God Himself has said. When He speaks of His Son, He speaks of Him as He has spoken of no one else. There's no other Son in whom He delights. He wanted to make no mistake about it that this one right here in the water with John the Baptist is My Son and there is no other. And the writers of Scripture understood that. When in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, it says that salvation is found in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. There's only salvation in this one, Jesus Christ. And God the Father has spoken. He has spoken through the prophets in the Old Testament. He spoke through John the Baptist. He spoke by His own voice, a voice from heaven. He spoke through the person of His Son, Jesus Christ, who was called the final Word. And He has spoken through the Scriptures, His written Word question is, will we listen? And will we reject our wrong beliefs about God or about Jesus or about the way of salvation? And will we listen to what He has said in His Word? Will we repent of our sin and will we turn to Christ? And will we identify with Jesus just like He identified with us? Let's pray. Father, we stand before You today and in our hearts You know exactly what is the state of our relationship with You. And there may be someone here today who has never made that commitment to Christ. And today could be the day. Would You open Your heart to Him? 
Would you ask Jesus to forgive your sins and come into your life and be your Savior and Lord and He will do that. Some today are here and they are wrestling with sin in their life. Lord, we all have areas that we struggle with. And Father, we bring them to You and we confess it as sin. We ask that by Your Holy Spirit You would empower us, that You would give us the victory in our struggle with sin. Help us to please You, Lord, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions. That we might be a witness for You to others of the change that You can bring. And when we stumble, Lord, help us to confess it and to get up and to walk with You again. Father, thank You for what You have done. Thank You for Your Son, our perfect, holy, spotless Redeemer. In His name we pray. Amen.